Welcome back to With Open Mouths. I'm your host, Connie Talila. Today, we talk to Kosi Sochukunebe, fondly known as Kosi, who's a Nigerian-Canadian visual artist and curator working in a variety of media, including video installation, photography, and printing. She has exhibited her work widely across Canada and the US and has presented on her research as well as facilitated workshops at various galleries, museums, and universities, both nationally and internationally. In this episode, we delve into creative journeys and into rich ideas that culminate in artistic practice. Welcome, Kosi. Thank you so much. Um, you know, the first time I saw your work was at the Brown Butter um, exhibition at Agnes. And I just, it was so powerful and wonderful that I thought I had to get you so that, you know, to talk about your work. I really appreciate that, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, I, I just, I remember that it, you know, it was on the left-hand side of the gallery. Um, and it was you actually kind of um, chopping and working, you know, with your hands. Um, they were kind of different screens. Uh, and yeah, it was just it was just really evocative and very still. So yeah, I just wanted to thank you for bringing that to us um, when you did. Yeah, I was so excited to be able to show that work and to create that work. And it had a lot of meaning for me and kind of like the trajectory of my practice. So mm. I'm really happy that it resonated with you, honestly. Yeah, it was, and it was beautiful. It was very, yeah. very beautiful, yeah. Um, but um, can you tell me what led you to the visual arts? Yeah, I think, I think honestly, it was one of the best ways for me to express myself. I think as a child, I struggled with kind of like speaking about my feelings um, and talking through things it wasn't the way in which I communicated with with other people and wasn't a way for me to kind of understand myself through speech in a way and so I turned to other forms of expression I spent a lot of time writing I wrote poetry and I wrote short stories but I also spent a lot of time drawing and, and painting and so it had always been for me the best way of kind of digging into uh, myself and, and learning about myself and finding a way to convey and communicate that um, not actually to others, but primarily back to myself. Um, and so I turned back to that kind of um, understanding of art as something that is deeply um, revealing about oneself when I was in my undergrad. And from there started exhibiting work, um, despite not actually um, studying or taking a course related to the arts. I was doing an undergrad in economics at McGill. Um, but being in Montreal still afforded me opportunities to show my work and to start to build a community and to start to really call myself an, an artist in a way that felt very real. Mm, that, that's incredible that you started like studying economics. Um, you know, like how come you, you kind of veered that way? Um, and, you know, 
<laughs> I think economics, I'm Nigerian. Uh, and so uh, all Nigerian parents want one doctor, one engineer, and one lawyer. And so I didn't go into any of those, but economics sounded pretty good to my parents and <laughs> to me. And so I ended up there. Um, to be honest, economics was, was interesting. I, I did love it. I loved the theory of it. And what's been really fascinating to me in terms of thinking back to how that still informs my practice is that I learned a lot of really problematic assumptions about humanity. <laughs> Um, because what you learn, especially at a school like McGill, is neoclassical economics. And so you'll learn very briefly about communism and Marxism, but it's never taken seriously as economic kind of systems and paradigms. Um, and so the assumption is that, like, you know, man is a rational thinker and makes rational decisions and self-interest is the motivating factor in, in how people and societies organized. And so those are like so fundamental and deep rooted in the in the field itself. And um, I ended up having to actively strive to unlearn those things even as I was learning it. So I was happy to have friends in cultural studies who you know, were teaching me and I was learning through them um, about theory and about postmodernism. I, I never learned about it in school until recently, recently in my master's. Um, but it basically meant that I had to go out of my way to constantly kind of unlearn everything that I was learning. Um, and in a way kind of like led me to this, this urge to kind of always dig deeper and kind of like go um, find those uh, hidden layers in terms of what it is that we see and what we think we understand. There's always something operating below that really shapes and fashions our worldviews. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think like economics from a Western perspective, like versus economics from like an African perspective, um, is just, it's so hugely different, you know, um, especially, you know, like it, it, at its roots. Um, yeah, so I, I can see how that would, you know, like create like an inner kind of like conflict, you know, and that um, like cultural theory would be able to like facilitate like an alternative like view. But that's, it's really, it's fascinating, um, you know, that you started with economics. But I mean, all, all, all the, all the amazing like you know like huge thinkers kind of you know employ like economics to kind of drive their um yeah their, their theories and stuff yeah well economics is really like almost like a form of, of it's a social science and so closely related to philosophy and so has traditionally been taught alongside philosophy and politics and so the thinking that it's like more of a, of a science a la physics is so recent and like turning to calculus and all of these models to make it into something that's a lot more kind of um, prescriptive than it really is, is, is also new. Um, and so those are things that like, honestly, I would love to go back to in my practice and really like delve into. Um, and I, I sometimes, I've been thinking about this recently, actually, how um, racism really is that huge distraction in a way, because so much of my practice has been geared towards trying to understand a race because it's my lived experience. Um, whereas there are so many other topics that I'd love, I'd love to touch on, but I, I, I can't in a way it feels like I can't because I first have to deal with this huge thing that my life has been kind of um, shaped around and that I can't escape. But, but I think like economics and economic theory and, 
you know, just, I mean, thinking about like the queen and about, you know, imperialism, that's like an economic kind of, you know, like a fundamentally economic idea, like construction, you know, it, it really is. Um, and, and, yeah, and that's like affected us like completely, you know, it's an economic, um, yeah, construction. Yeah, so it's not so different. Mm -hmm. And racial capitalism, it really draws those connections and even like thinking through coloniality and, and the ways in which uh, there are so many axes um, through which col coloniality operates. Um, yeah, you're totally right. Uh, part of me also just wants to go back to the abstractness of the econ and like really like tease that apart in a way that like, yeah, it goes, <laughs> takes me back to, to how I learned it. But anyways, I could spend a lot of time talking about that and it's not fully yes. fleshed ideas. No, um, <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, um, like I really want to talk about how, you know, at that time, like as an, as an undergrad, you kind of made a connection to like cultural theory, social theory, um, you know, like what, who were the people who like informed you and, and led you like deeper, you know, to explore like the visual arts? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Bell Hooks was, was huge. Um, so I ended up reading a bit of her work um, and there were some of her ideas that have been informing me and, and Black feminist thinkers um, that has been informing me in my practice since 2017, really. Um, and so with Bella Hooks, she has this notion of a radical Black subjectivity that she describes, and she doesn't quite like define it in a way that's very kind of substantive and, and tells you clearly what it is, but she kind of points you towards this representation of blackness that veers away from this binary of good versus bad representations that we end up falling into because we always represent blackness or we tend to represent blackness vis-a-vis uh, -vis whiteness. And so there's this need to kind of speak to this good versus bad. Um, and she's constantly kind of pushing towards this radical black subjectivity that is really about kind of like uh, transcending those kind of binaries about really leading to um, self-actualization and self-realization in a way that is not at all tethered to whiteness that really departs from whiteness and in a way kind of I've been really interested in thinkers who kind of think through blackness as um, as an ontology um, blackness as something that is beyond whiteness beyond kind of racism but instead really um, transforms how we live and and navigate life and so some of this thinking, you could tie it back probably to kind of standpoint theory, right, in terms of this understanding of social positioning and, and positionality as being what um, determines your worldview and how you navigate the world. And so um, Bell Hooks talks about this oftentimes with reference to the margins versus the center and Black women and racialized people finding themselves at these margins. Um, but from within these margins, they have this view of society that is so distinct, that is so unique and produces its own form of knowledge. And so this kind of understanding of how one's positionality and the ways in which one navigates the world as a result of their blackness um, creates a particular knowledge, creates a particular worldview is something that I keep coming back to. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I ended up really falling in love with Franz Fanon and, and his thinking, um, and not necessarily um, the wretched of the earth, but more so black skin, white mask, in which he really speaks about the lived experience um, of blackness, focusing, of course, and this is one of the criticisms 
of him on the black man in particular. Um, but the way in which he talks about that kind of lived experience, the way in which he talks about in a very kind of visceral and embodied way, the, the experience of racialization is something that has fascinated me and something I've spent a lot of time in my, in my practice trying to visualize this kind of tearing apart of the black body and its reconfiguration um, in ways that kind of the way I try and do it. Uh, in ways that kind of take you beyond that binary of good versus bad representations of blackness that in a way lead you to that radical black subjectivity. And so seeing this process of racialization and all of the things that kind of um, it generates, seeing it as a as something that you know leads to a different reality of blackness and it's not a good versus a bad, it's just the reality of it. Um, and that reality is kind of for me has always been a kind of piecing together of the black body in new configurations that aren't necessarily good, aren't necessarily bad, but are just a result of the systems in which you're navigating. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I suppose also this, um, you know, would tie in with, or, or it would be informed by your live experience. Um, can you, and, and, and I've, I've, I've watched some of your other work and, and I know that it's, you know, like very, it, it is close to um, who you feel you are, you know. Um, can you talk about a recent work that is especially like close to your heart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like going back to the one with brown butter, I think that one was really interesting because um, I've been really interested in Black affect and what Black affect can kind of, uh, the kinds of knowledge that that can produce specifically um, hesitation. And so, as someone who has uh, who grew up in a predominantly white kind of uh, environment, I grew up in Gatineau, so there was not only race but also language and kind of like, um, yes, the realities of being a black person in Quebec are very unique as well, um, and so that led to a lot of um, uh, a lot of internalized racism, but also this kind of particular way of navigating the world that for me has always been kind of characterized by a certain level of hesitation. And so hesitation and this kind of like, um, in French it's called tête en main, but this kind of grasping um, is the way in which I, I feel like I've often navigated uh, the world. And so when I came across the work of, of um, these feminist philosophers who um, take this field of philosophy called phenomenology and a branch that's really inspired by the work of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who uh, Fanon is actually in kind of like conversation with in his work, um, they see hesitation as something that's generative, not as this kind of like bad thing, but as something that kind of opens you up to new possibilities because it, it kind of speaks to the slowness, this openness to different realities. Um, and it creates, so in a way, it, it creates an, an opening to new ways of understanding and being. And so, Hesitation has been something I've been playing around with. I've been playing around also with eroticism. I've been playing around with pleasure based on the work of Audre Lorde. Um, but even, and I've been playing around obviously with um, kind of black pain and suffering with regard to that process of racialization and the violence that it can engender. And so there's different forms of black affect that I've been kind of engaging with. And I felt as though I kept on creating works that were helpful, um, but in a way I felt were still easily consumed by whiteness in a way. Um, and I felt as though 
there was something within me that I was, was withholding, that I was keeping in, that was continuing to kind of hurt me. And um, I realized I was just very angry. <laughs> and uh, nothing I had done had allowed me to express that anger. Um, and so that anger was still there and had not been touched upon. And it's corrosive. Anger is corrosive. It eats you up. And uh, in the wake of 2020 and the killing of George Floyd, um, I had a lot of anger, a lot of anger and uh, a deep need and desire to let it out, to not have it eat me away. And so I wanted to create a work that really was an ode to that anger, did not see that anger as something that was useless and needs to be clamped down, but really saw that anger as something that can and should be let out into the world, that can and should be destructive. Um, and so Brown Butter was really about thinking about anger differently. And through it, I was able to touch on these histories of resistance uh, and refusal um, that you find in the Caribbean that were unknown to me, um, but I immediately connected with. Because in a way, the anger that these enslaved Africans um, felt they were able to leverage and they were able to use and they were able to um, harness in a way that was an, the ultimate rejection of the anti-Black world in which they found themselves. And I think that so often we go through this anti-Black world and we accept it as it is. And I needed to be reminded of the ways in which we can wholesale refuse it. Mm. Um, Kosi, like this, this idea of like hesitation, like it's, it's really interesting, you know? I, I mean, I can see how um, it's kind of, it, you know, it can be generative and it can, you know, because it exists in a particular a space, you know, and obviously, if you feel um, that, you know, like socially, you're in a, um, a hostile environment, that is how you are going to like navigate it, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. through hesitation, it makes like complete sense. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a form of like self preservation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, and, and I can also completely see how it can be corrosive because it can stop you from doing what it is that you need to do, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, mm -hmm. and kind of like getting in touch with that anger mm -hmm. is like, as you explain it, is just so it's really powerful, mm -hmm. especially when, you know, the way that it is encapsulated in that piece, like the brown butter piece, because it is not... It, it is kind of like it's manifested as being really like deliberate mm -hmm. yes and, yeah. and and this you know this kind of like understanding of anger as deliberate yeah thoughtful yeah um you know like coming from a history coming mm -hmm. from a place of consideration of thought Mm -hmm. is 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 completely it's like the antithesis of like the angry black woman stereotype mm, 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 mm. um yeah yeah i think that's so fascinating because um yes 100 it is deliberate and um so essentially the video is showing the steps that enslaved africans use to take uh, cassava which is um a naturally poisonous crop that's native to uh, south america um, instead of trying to eliminate that poison, the cyanide content, 
Um, what these enslaved Africans would do was actually try and concentrate the cyanide content and create this kind of powder um, with which to then poison slave masters. And so I found the first time I saw reference to that, um, I was I had started looking into cassava because I knew that it was poisonous. My sister had done research into cassava as her, uh, her master's thesis. And then I came across these um, entries in these kind of um, catalogs that British, um, British men had developed, had created based on their time in Jamaica in I think the 17th century, just kind of cat cataloging the flora and fauna. Um, and so they were describing cassava, what it looks like, how enslaved Africans used it in order to make it edible. And then it was all kind of all very objective, you know, like an objective kind of description of and, and categorization and cataloging of these things, these objects, right? And so there's this kind of conflating um, these enslaved Africans with the flora and fauna to be kind of observed and, and objectively kind of discussed. And yet from there, there was this kind of transition to a kind of warning. Um, and so um, the, the writers would then say like, caution basically um, to the other British people reading, uh, enslaved Africans have developed, a, um, or these slaves have developed like a process by which they can poison slave masters. And then they go and they uh, describe those steps. And it was just so fascinating because there's a shift in language. There's a shift in kind of even, it's, it's for me, it was perceptible. There was this kind of going from describing um, these people as objects um, and describing how they use the flora and fauna that was accept, accept, uh, accessible to them to then kind of contending with them as agents who are capable of wreaking havoc on the lives of the British. Um, and so there was this way in which the agency um, of, these, of these people was um, asserted through their ability to um, spark fear in the lives of the British, uh, of the colonizer. And so there was this kind of automatic relationship with, uh, to me with rage and agency. Um, because for me, I knew that if you were going to risk your life attempting to poison your slave master, you needed to be really angry. <laughs> and people forget that anger tells you something. All negative emotions, quote unquote negative emotions, have, um, have value. They tell you something. All emotions tell you something. And anger is telling you that there is something that you're being faced with that you cannot accept. That is what it is telling you. And so anger and rage, yes, can be expressed in ways that are volatile, can be expressed in ways that seem um, chaotic, but they aren't necessarily. Because at the end of the day, it's this kind of understanding and realization that there's something I can no longer accept. And so there is a meditation from that in terms of living a reality, in terms of realizing that you can no longer stand this reality. And in terms of finding whatever you have access to and using it to create a weapon with which to exercise your agency. And so as I came across the story, I, I pieced all of that together and I recognized, oh, this is actually something for me. Hidden in this kind of like document that the British wrote for themselves, for themselves, um, wrote themselves for themselves, 
here, accidentally, they've slipped in something that I can resonate with, that I see as a transition, transmission, sorry, of those enslaved Africans that they're describing to me. And I felt that. And I felt like those instructions were instructions for me. Mm. No, I mean, I think that, that that feeling of like transmission is 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 clear. It's it kind of it looks like a step-by-step instruction. If you want to kill your slave <laughs> masters, do this. Like exactly. this is what you need to do. And yeah. and I think um, you know, the 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 kind of the screen that for me kind of always struck out um, or stood out was when you put the this kind of mixture into your fingernail. Yes. And, and yes. it kind of made me, it, it kind of made me imagine who would this woman be? Where would she be standing in relation or sitting? Would she be sitting? Would she be kneeling? Would she, you know, in relation to her slave? master or would she be in the kitchen or you know would she be in a room would you you know and and it kind of it kind of you know it, it, it like fleshed out this reality of a person just because you put that into your fingernail um you know and and which which is incredible in in many many ways you know the fact that um like slavery is so close it's kind of in your dna it's woven in you know it's been a like like it affects you and it continues to affect people you know in the present day um and yeah i just thought that was just amazing and and i thought you know how deadly is this you know, if this is going to like land in somebody's like, goblet or something, you know, um, and, and what power that holds, what kind of like power, like quiet um, power that holds. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. So the, um, the poisoning method was actually called um, in these kind of catalogs, the thumbnail method. Um, because of how it was transported into the home of the slave master. And so for me, that thumbnail and kind of like, that's an image I, I've used multiple times of me kind of holding like um, the mortar and pestle and, and holding with the, the poison under my thumbnail. It's one that has become so important to me because it speaks to, you know, this idea of a weapon hidden in plain sight. Um, using whatever means that is available to you as well. So by any means necessary, which is again, this kind of saying that we hear with regard to rejection of, of anti-Blackness. Um, and then finally, this, this notion that what you need to kind of take control of your life, what you need to take over your own liberation and to kind of rechart the world as you, as you experience it and live it, all of that can fit under one thumbnail. That's yeah. all that's needed. But, but but even, you know, like I told you before, like this, like the iconic kind of mark of the thumbprint. Yes, yes. You yeah. know, yeah. of like the first like democratic election when like most South Africans, you know, who cannot kind of sign their name made their mark, you yeah. know, by using their thumb. Um, yeah, and and I think, yeah. yeah, I think like another thing that I'm so fascinated is like how, you know, the fact that you use yourself, like mm -hmm. you use your own body mm -hmm. like in your, um, as a subject 
in your own work and i'm really i'm really fascinated by you know um artists from the diaspora in canada like annie jordan and her salt photographs um also using like herself and it's it's been it's been you know like documented throughout the world you know how artists use their own bodies um how what are you thinking like what are you thinking when you use yourself as a subject in your own work like i said before my work has always been about me trying to under, understand myself and so it's kind of like second nature to think that oh it has to be me kind of like in these images it has to be me performing these actions um because it's always this kind of navigation and kind of questioning of my own lived reality um and so um it's it's not necessarily actually that it's second nature that's not true so initially when i was creating my my work when i was starting out as an artist in montreal doing my undergrad i was actually doing portraits of black women that's what i was doing um because what was motivating me at that time was this desire for positive representations of blackness right <laughs> And so I was a young black girl who had grown up in Gatineau, had not seen representations of black beauty and needed to create that for herself. And so many years were spent just doing that with oil pastels, with oil paint, with watercolor. That was my practice. And then what I realized is that like that wasn't helping me feel better. <laughs> um it was creating these lovely and beautiful images, but what the issue that I was facing was around racism and ra the process of racialization how it was that i someone who was born in nigeria left nigeria uh, left nigeria at the age of five came to canada came to gatineau of all places all of a sudden became black and then for the rest of my life had to deal with what it meant to be black and so that's where that's where fanon and that process of racialization i began to focus on the process that has always been my focus because racialization is a process yeah that is that that is awesome i'm so sorry to like you know kind of cut you off but i like i just thought wow wow you are so you are so right you are so right you you start like feeling your skin color depending on where you are in the world and who you are with um uh, yeah and, and and that must have been so dramatic and obviously it was for you as like a five-year-old child you know suddenly being like such a like tiny minority um you know like becoming black you know i i yeah i, I think that would be that would be an amazing like title uh for yeah a work like becoming black because it's and and i think it's so um, it's important for people who are not racialized to understand, you know, like uh, what that means, um, you know, uh, yeah. And not all, only people who aren't racialized, like the experience of blackness is so different, right? And so as someone who spent time in the US, someone who grew up in Canada, someone who spent time in the UK and someone who's Nigerian, like blackness is discussed and experienced and lived so differently. Um, and so there's an understanding of blackness that Haitians will have that I don't have. 
um, because their nation basically, like Haitian history is something I really want to delve into a lot more, to be honest. Um, and it, it's just so, so fascinating in terms of that kind of relationship to Blackness and a rejection of, of the terms on which Blackness was created and a kind of understanding of Blackness in a totally new light, right? That's what you get from Haitian history. And so Haitians, I've been having conversations with them since moving to Montreal because there's so many Haitians, which is amazing, and they're creating amazing artwork here. Um, but their understanding of Blackness is so incredibly different from someone who was born in Nigeria and then moved to Canada. Or, or like somebody like myself who's African but not dark, you know, um, and people's um, like dark skinned. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really, you know, in South Africa, because of like apartheid and the way we were kind of categorized based on the tone of our darkness, um, just thinking about how that um, like translates into Canada, into this environment, it's just, it's really strange and kind of, yeah, it's kind of like opening all sorts of, yeah, like new kind of ideas about like what it means to be like racialized. It's not, it's, it's like, like you say, it's not a, um, it's not like a one size fits all kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, that this like ties in very well with your ideas about like what is hidden and what is visible like what you can see you know like what is transparent and what is opaque um why like what drew you to these ideas mm -hmm. i think for me like so much of the work that i was doing ended up kind of revolving around this broader notion of this politics of visibility around blackness right and so the experience of blackness in canada has been described i believe by Ronaldo walcott as um uh, this absented presence and so there's this kind of understanding that black people in Canada are constantly navigating this invisibility this feeling of being absented but nonetheless present and sometimes not not merely just present but hyper visible and overrepresented in particular ways. When you think of like incarceration, when you think of being stopped by the police for random road checks or whatever, there's a way in which we quickly go from not being seen, not being talked about, to being kind of like over surveilled, um, to being uh, watched, um, to feeling as though you stand out in a way that puts you in danger. And so you're constantly navigating this kind of spectrum from one pole to the other. And so the kind of um, flip side or the kind of um, parallel is this kind of navigating from, from this space of transparency to one of opacity. And transparency obviously also speaking to Western theories and Western kind of understandings from the enlightenment. Right, this kind of desire to categorize things, to know them objectively, to be able to um, to create classes of, of humans, of things, uh, etc. So there's this desire for things to be transparent to you, to understand them fully. Um, and so there's this transparency that for me speaks to this hypervisibility, um, blackness as this thing that um, needs to be studied, derailed, and so on. And, and categorized in order to um, sustain um, white supremacy, which is built on the dehumanization of black people. 
And so there's this obvious need to know Blackness in a way that uh, allows you to control it. And so transparency and hypervisibility go hand in hand. And then on the other side is this kind of invisibility where there's a desire within the Canadian kind of like landscape, for example, to kind of dismiss um, the relationship that Black people have to this country that stretches back 400 years um, and to kind of always treat Black people as recent kind of immigrants. And, you know, the, the experience of Blackness in Canada is so incredibly heterogeneous, heterogeneous um, compared to that of in the United States. So I'm a recent immigrant and yet there's this kind of, um, there are these dynamics um, that push back against um, the reality that there are Black people here whose who's, uh, ancestry dates back much, uh, much farther. Um, but beyond that, this kind of um, uh, desire to kind of uh, not necessarily show Blackness as being part of the national imaginary, unless it serves, and um, unless it serves that national imaginary as we're, we're starting to see now. Yes, or a particular um, narrative, or takes a exactly. particular box. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, you know, the, the way that you um, use these ideas of like transparency and opacity in brown butter with mm -hmm. like the curtains. Can you talk about that? Because it was really it was kind of, um, you know, you walk past it and you yeah. don't see it. Yeah. Um, but but you kind of you might see it from across the road or you might, yeah. you know, can, yeah. can, you, yeah. can you explain? It was very cool. Yeah, I love that. Um, so my interest in opacity is also related to um, the work of Edouard Toussaint, whose work and, and theories around relationality, poetics and opacity have been very fundamental to a lot of Black artists. Um, so he speaks about this right to opacity and opacity being this kind of refusal um, uh, of transparency in a way, this refusal of, of needing to be seen and understood uh, as a kind of uh, as a kind of prerequisite for being respected and valued and and seen as um, as someone that you can be in relationship with, and so I turned to his ideas of opacity as a way of kind of like wanting to uh, understand and accept the parts of myself that I don't understand and actually find refuge in that not understanding and right and find refuge in not having to be seen by people. Um, if they're not, if they're predisposed to see me in ways that don't resonate. Um, and so finding re refuge in opacity. And so opacity kind of flipped my understanding of and experience of invisibility because I had always seen not being seen as a negative. And so opacity kind of makes you realize that, oh, opacity, not being seen um, and finding refuge in that can actually be a strength and a power and something that we need. And so all of a sudden, like invisibility became something different or could be something different. And so it opened me up to uh, an understanding of the ways in which our forced invisibility can actually be used as a way to exercise agency. And so not equating invisibility to oppression as easily. And so with these, um, these enslaved Africans, many of them had been women, um, and the reason why there's this, this kind of like saying that uh, poison is a woman's weapon, and that's because of the relationship poison has to domestic labor and care labor. And so if you are preparing someone's food, if you're cleaning someone's home, et cetera, you have access to their food into their house in a way that allows you to poison them. 
And so there's this link between um, kind of like womanhood, femininity, and and poison that in a way that kind of subverts um, our understandings of, of care, care labor and the oppression um, that women who were forced into these positions faced uh, in a way that helps you see how it afforded them an, uh, a possibility and, and an opportunity to actually exercise their agency and reject that system. And so I was really interested in the ways in which invisibility um, and the kind of like uh, being part of the house, um, being an object within the house is what allowed these enslaved women to actually poison the slave masters. And so I wanted to create a piece that would blend into the home, that would become part of the architecture because that's what those women were. They were objects within the home. They were not people. They were not treated as people. They were not treated in a way that respected and saw their humanity. They were seen as objects within the home. And so from that, they were able to then, um, you know, do what they did uh, in terms of exercise their power in other ways. Um, so I wanted to find an object within um, that the neo neocolonial home that the exhibition took place in that would allow me to touch on all of these things. And it became those curtains because those curtains very much bled into the architecture of the space. Those curtains looked close enough to the original curtains that people would bypass them without a second glance. Um, and those curtains saw everything. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the, um, there was one kind of image that we, you reproduced on the curtains yes. that is actually, it's like a mortar and pestle and like a woman's yes. hands. Yeah. But um, it actually, like out, the, out of the corner of your eye, it looks like a bird. Kind of looks oh. like, a, yeah, it looks like a bird sitting on a, you oh, know, on a tree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 it does. It really does. And that's what I thought until I looked closer and I thought, oh, wow. Interesting. You know, and then, yeah, so, so they're two sets of curtains and they speak to each other. You know, yes. Um, yes. So the the kind of the the shiny ones, I, yeah. I I don't know the mask or what kind of like fabric that is. Yeah. Um. You know, that's like the mortar and the pestle, and then like on the right is like a very like transparent yes. kind of chiffon, you know, um, and and that's like a, a kind of blow up of that image. Yes. Um, exactly. Yeah, and and then you know because of the light shining like from the chandelier if you cross the street at night you'll see this kind of woman's hands with a mortar and pestle um, yes. and, yeah and and it's 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 very like it's very beautiful but it's also like once you understand yeah what she's doing yeah um, yeah it's kind of got this like really strong kind of power to it you know? And the thing is, like, um, people oftentimes will bypass and walk past the curtains, but the curtains, in a way, and the woman who's represented is watching you constantly, right? And so in that kind of invisibility, and, and this is what Black feminist theory teaches you, is that from that positionality in the margins, you see things in a way that no one else can. And so in that position of invisibility, there's a perspective that is so, dis so distinct and unique that is afforded to those women. And constantly my work, my work is very much about epistemology. It's about those perspectives that come from a, a very specific lived experience. And I'm always trying to highlight the value of that knowledge, right? Not necessarily for other people, but that knowledge was important for those people and it allowed them 
to do something and allow them to to see the world in a way that is extremely unique and different. And I'm always trying to like think through that. So another work that I have that's it's um, it's very much in line with this that takes in a very different approach. Um, it's it's a podium that I have that's um, in a basically an empty space. So you have a podium, and then over top of the podium are these sheets of red plexiglass. And then on opposite walls in the room are these red banners. And essentially the podium is fashioned after a slave auction block, but no one knows that. (laughs) Uh, And you're basically asked or you're allowed to get atop the podium and to look through the red plexiglass. And when you do that, um, you can actually see hidden images. And so you can stand like you can stand on top of the podium. Yeah, you can. And that's the whole point. The, the exhibition, the installation can only be experienced from a top that's auction block. Wow. And what are the images? Like, are the images projections or are they? Okay. No, so the images, one, it's text in one image. So the text is, uh, it says, I have been withheld with the bin in brackets. Um, and so as much as I, I love the idea of opacity and withholding invisibility as things that uh, we can use to exercise our, our agency. And um, there's also the reality that they still speak to a form of suppression. And so uh, I had been reading this book by um, uh, Dion Brandt called The Blue Clerk. Yes. Oh, starts- yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. No, it's amazing. The Blue Clerk <laughs> is, is amazing. It is. Um, especially because it talks about like the verso, you know, like yeah. the verso yes. has like this power, like the verso. Exactly, um, and and it's and and you can kind of read it just from that perspective of like the verso and like every you know um, this kind of yeah the clock yeah. is kind of like actually laboring you know and kind of weaving in and out of the story. It's fantastic. It's one of yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, and so uh, the blue clerk starts off with I have withheld more than I have shared, and well, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, this is super interesting, and there's a lot of discussion of withholding. And I thought that the withholding was something that can be powerful. And I remember going to a writer's talk that John gave and getting her to sign my book and telling her, like, you know, it's really important for me to, like, see you talked about withholding in a way that shows it as a form of power and blah, blah, blah. And she looked at me. She's like, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. Like, for you to withhold means that you're withholding from yourself. Right. And it's another form of suppression. Wow, And so it became this kind of wanting to withhold as a way of kind of like saying, I'm going to keep this to myself and I don't need to share with you and realizing that that withholding is still a form of suppression. And so that was, that's something I still think through quite a bit. And then on the other, the hidden image was an image of a spider. Um, But people, what people didn't realize looking from atop the podium is that the spider is actually made out of human body parts. Um, so my body parts, so it's a self-portrait of me as a spider. And that's me speaking to um, the idea of the trickster in Guinean culture, which is in also other cultures uh, as well, including Igbo, uh, but Anansi the spider, uh, the trickster spider. And so in this kind of constant navigation towards this idea of a radical Black subjectivity, I've actually been gearing towards the trickster as my model. 
um, because the trickster is uh, an active refusal of that binary of good versus bad, moral versus immoral. It navigates the human and the godly realms. Um, and so I've been turning to the trickster as that thing that really gets me to see myself and experience myself and represent myself in ways that are beyond and transcendental. Um, and so that was the image that people could see. So in fact, it was a bit of a game of hide and seek of like, you know, I'm here, but you can't see me and you don't know I can be found. And even when you see me, you don't know that you've seen me. So again, it's a, this kind of opacity. I, I, is it um, the case that you kind of moved closer towards like the digital in your practice? Like, you know, you, you mentioned that you started with like painting and oil paints and, and, and watercolors and pastels. Um, how do you like what role is, you know, do you give like the digital? Is it like what is the kind of liberatory role? Mm -hmm. So the digital um, has been informing me like since I started moving away from painting and so on and started working with like photography having to work with like Photoshop and things like that and seeing the possibilities there. Um, and then recently starting to work with video work for the first time um, and playing around with that, playing around with sound a lot more and starting to just kind of like see the possibilities there. Um, but more recently really delving more into the digital has been this project that was commissioned by um, Mozilla Foundation, which runs uh, Firefox. And so they run this annual um, festival called MossFest. And they invited me to create a project for MossFest 2022. And at that time, I had been working a lot around language and imperialism, because that, that's actually another, my, my practice has a lot of different threads. They all come together somehow. <laughs> it, it's a lot of different threads. Um, and one of those threads has been imperialism, language, and um, anti-colonial solidarities. And so I had been thinking a lot about those ideas um, and thinking also about the story of the Tower of Babel. And so this is a biblical story wherein humanity is united by one language um, and then they create a tower that reaches up into the heavens and God is like, no, nah, I don't like that. Um, and basically uh, spreads humanity across uh, the globe and makes all of their languages mutually unintelligible. Um, and so I was kind of approaching that story from the perspective of understanding and realizing like, oh, like that language that they're talking about, uh, that one common language, wouldn't that be English? And then asking yourself, how did English come to dominate? And realizing that maybe the story is in a way like, um, and not necessarily done on purpose, but maybe in a way it speaks to a history of imperialism. And so how do you approach the story from an anti-imperial kind of perspective that kind of understands the harms that might have led to the um, possibility of a universal language that doesn't see in a universal language um, something that is necessarily always super positive and wants to push against this idea of a plurality of languages as a punishment, which is what the story tells you. Um, and so there's so many different dynamics within this story that you can start to tease apart. And amongst those is this kind of like environmental kind of analogy of a monoculture versus a biodiverse ecosystem. 
And these are the kinds of languages that you can very easily apply to, to language. Um, and you can apply to, to understandings of English and French and other colonial languages as kind of being part of um, uh, a kind of colonial um, monoculture and uh, exploitation in a way um, of one particular monocrop uh, being, being these languages. Um, so wanting to kind of like make these illusions between language uh, and culture and nature in a way that pushes against that binary of nature versus culture, and in a way that asks us to question what we can learn from nature in terms of reconceptualizing language, what we can learn from thinking about language as a biodiverse ecosystem um, in order to kind of like see different ways of, of uh, understanding yeah, how, how language operates and the possibilities behind it. And so those were the kinds of themes that I, I was working with. And now I'm working with Mozilla to use their platform, Mozilla Hubs, to create a digital, interactive digital environment that kind of speaks to all of these ideas. Um, and so we did a first prototype um, in June, 2022, um, that kind of uses Mozilla Hubs and audio recordings of people responding to a prompt um, and creates this quite immersive, quite chaotic uh, environment that the user is then able to navigate at will. And so that was a prototype that we are now working to flesh out um, as part of uh, getting ready for the next BuzzFest in March, 2023, when we'll hopefully be launching the, the uh, full project. Um, and from there, hopefully working on a physical installation as well for June 2023 and uh, other things that are in the works that have not been confirmed that I hope will work out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been, it's been really great working with the digital in that way and kind of seeing the possibilities of um, hopefully like being able to explore AI more. I don't think I'll be able to do it for this project, but in the case of Mozilla Hubs, like more of that metaverse kind of feel, um, I'll be working with someone who uh, creates 3D assets using Blender to create a very customized environment. And yeah, lots of things I'm learning. Yeah. It's that all sounds, very, very new. <laughs> and it sounds like fantastic. I'm so looking forward to that. I remember you talking, you know, you um, describing it before, and it just, yeah. it sounds so exciting and wonderful. And you like the perfect person to be, you know, like heading this project. It's, it's very yeah, exciting. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. So like, thank you so much, Josie, for speaking to us um, today. You. It's been fantastic. And, and I, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I really love like what you're doing and I love your processes thank and you. I think, yeah. And yeah, you've, you, you really like just opened like definitely you know just with brown butter like open people's eyes to all yeah. sorts of new like um potentials so thank you i appreciate thank you so that much. and thank you so much for having me and inviting me oh, it's a pleasure anytime and come back yeah. to Houston, please i will i, will. <laughs> <laughs> I want to okay. thank you thank you thank you for listening to with open mouths special thanks to our guest for speaking with us today. This podcast is hosted by myself, Dr. Kanita Lilla, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Center in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM.
The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Alroy EC3 Cox III. Episodes of With Open Mouths are released monthly and you can find them on Digital Agnes, CFRC's website and on your favourite podcasting platform. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review and subscribe now so that you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time. They wanted us to shade. They thought we would stay slaves.